This is Eitan Weinstein. And I'm Naor Menninger. And you're listening to Two Nice Jewish Boys. was a different place when we last met with the beloved Dr. Dan Shiftan uh, in March of this year. Putin had just invaded Ukraine in a move that Dan called a self-defeat of Russia. The U.S. and Iran were on the verge of cutting a new deal that would have allowed Iran access to enormous funds and normalize this barbaric regime among the nations. And the PM of Israel was Naftali Bennett. Indeed, many things can change in 10 months. Putin is still stuck in the muddy grounds of East Ukraine, and there is no end in sight for this war. Europe is struggling with devastating inflation and an energy crisis that threatens the very fabric of the Union. And Iran became a strong ally of Putin, with its UAVs killing innocent Ukrainians, thus leading the West to back off a deal for the foreseeable future, at least. Iran is also currently dealing with what looks like the biggest civil uprising in its history. To talk about all of these fascinating geopolitical developments and much, much more, we're thrilled to be joined yet again by the one, the only, the purely majestic Dr. Dan Shiftan. Dan is the head of the National Security Studies Center at the University of Haifa. He has taught at the IDF National Security College uh, and Command and Staff College. He was an advisor to Israel's National Security Council and former prime ministers Yitzhak Rabin and Ariel Sharon. He's also the author of several books and articles on issues pertaining to Israel's national security. He joins us today for the third time to talk about the Iranian threat and much more. The fourth or the fifth time? The fourth, think. the fifth, the yeah. sixth. Hello. Good morning. So, Good morning. where do we begin? Uh, your phone needs yeah. to be there. Uh, where do we begin from? Well, the Ye- most important thing that happened is the war. And in spite of the fact that we already discussed it, the very fact that we are now almost a year after the beginning of this war and there's no end in sight. It changed in a very fundamental way, the West, the democracies, because for the first time they realized after a very long period of time that what they considered to be retro, namely a war that doesn't belong in the 21st century and certainly not um, in Europe, in the middle of uh, Europe, basically sent them a message that changed Europe. Now, I don't know if the change will last. The Europeans have gravitated again and again to a policy of um, appeasement, a policy of misunderstanding tyrants and radicals around the world, and also in Europe itself, also Russia itself. I hope this change will last because for the first time, people in Europe realize that there is an immediate threat they realized that their fantasies about the international community, somehow something majestic like the international community will magically change the world and people will become civilized. They realized they are barbarians in Europe. 
they realize that their assumption that interdependence prevents war because why would Putin that is dependent on European money? I mean, not only is Europe dependent on uh, Russian gas, but Putin is dependent on the proceeds of this gas. So why would he do it? And to understand that he thinks in a completely different way, that the Russians think in a very different way, that something like Ukraine is possible is tremendously important. Germany doubled its defense budget. Britain did something very similar. Throughout Europe, there is an understanding that they need NATO much more than before, that they need the United States. The United States understands, I mean, particularly a democratic administration understands that you need to stand up to it. And some of them are actually doing the right thing. And it's very difficult to find what the right thing is. On the one hand, you don't want a nuclear confrontation with Russia. On the other hand, you cannot allow this to happen. And you must see that it undermines Putin, not only that he fails in Ukraine, but also that it undermines him in Russia itself. So this is one thing that changed. In the region here in the Middle East, also something very fundamental has changed. For the first time, the Russians, I'm sorry, for the first time, the Arabs understand four things at the same time. Four things? Four things, yes. Wow, it's a lot a, of things to understand. <laughs> a, since the so-called Arab Spring, they realize how weak they are, how weak the Arab states are, because for a very long time you had this fantasy that if you only change the rulers, if you only depose the leaders, if only the people rise up, then the corrupt and the dictatorial leaders will go away and the Arab societies will produce some kind of if not democracy, at least a somewhat more pluralistic system. And the Arab failure that is now with us for more than 200 years will change. And for the first time, we will see the Arabs fitting into the 21st century, being able to meet the challenges of the 21st century. The Arab Spring was a total catastrophe. It failed completely. And it demonstrated to the Arabs that their weaknesses are structural. So that's number one. Arabs realizing that Arabs are weak. Number two, realizing that Iran is strong and extremely dangerous and tries to hegemonize the Middle East and that they have existential problems, at least the regimes have existential problems, perhaps even the independence of the countries is threatened. And therefore, when you have a strong Iran that is very aggressive and a weak set of Arab states that cannot defend themselves against Iranian aggression, you need outside assistance. And then came Obama. And they realized you can't trust the Americans because Obama practically abdicated the position of American leadership in the world. And he believed that if you project weakness, if you project international incompetence, if you project impotence, this will bring peace somehow 
I'm not sure how. And so you have Arab weakness, Iranian threat, you can't trust the Americans, and then you have the Israelis. On the one hand, much less important, much weaker than the United States. On the other hand, much more dependable than the United States because the Israelis must fight the Iranians for their own good, not in order to help the Arabs. This is a byproduct. Israel must prevent Iran from hegemonizing the Middle East. If Israel will be in a region hegemonized by Iran, it cannot defend itself in the long run. So we are engaged in a war. It is not a very high intensity war. It is a preventive war, but it's war. Israel is at war with Iran. So the Arabs understand we are weak, the Iranians threaten us, the Americans are not dependable, Israel is dependable. And this brought about an Arab-Israeli coalition. Here is the interesting thing. The Middle East was defined for a very long time, at least in the perception of people in Europe, in the United States, by the Arab-Israeli conflict. Now it is defined by an Arab-Israeli coalition against the radicals in the region. So you have a few radicals. You have Iran, of course, Syria, the Palestinians, and, you know, here and there, proxies of Iran, Hezbollah in Lebanon, uh, Iranian militias in Iraq, and the Houthis in Yemen, very few radicals, and on the other side, in terms of the interests, you have the most Arab states, Israel, the United States, and Europe. Now the question is, can you convince the Americans and the Europeans that this is a new setting, and here the attempt to appease Iran is counterproductive? Yesterday we saw Biden saying uh, the deal is dead. Well, I think it better be dead. You know, Ben-Gurion made a distinction between dead on the one hand and dead and buried and will not be resurrected. In Jerusalem, you never know after three days, strange things happen. <laughs> so when he spoke about the uh, armistice agreements, he said, dead, buried, and will not be resurrected. I hope that this will not be resurrected because Americans systematically misunderstand the Middle East, starting from Eisenhower and continuing, of course, with Jimmy Carter and Barack Obama being the worst presidents that you can possibly imagine in terms of Middle Eastern policies. So now we have an understanding that even Biden and even the Europeans are beginning to understand that appeasing Iran is not only impossible but counterproductive. The Iranians not only became much more radical, but also the cooperation with Russia puts it in a broader context of the war in the Ukraine. And what the major consideration did not achieve, namely that you should not allow Iran to hegemonize the Middle East, now you get on something that is much less important but is much more impressive in the West, 
A, the human rights violations in Iran. I mean, this is a barbaric regime, and this was always a barbaric regime, only now it's more visible how barbaric it is. And the fact that they're cooperating with Russia on Iran, I don't care what their motivation is as long as the direction is possible. So from an Israeli point of view, you have a much improved situation. First of all, Europeans, for the first time in a very, very long time, understand what it is to stand up to a war. The Europeans still have a hobby. They speak about the Palestinians when they're bored and they need some occupational therapy, then they say something no about... No pun intended. Uh, the, the Palestinians, uh, they bring it up and they protest about something and the Israelis ignore it and everything's okay. Nobody takes them seriously. But on the other hand, the bilateral relations between Israel and Europe improve in a dramatic way. I think it's very interesting that 80 years after the uh, Second World War and the Holocaust, now the defense on Berlin, of Berlin from ballistic missiles depend on Israeli technology and Israeli missiles. So we are in a new era where the European Union says something, you know, to feel good about itself. But the bilateral relations between Israel and most European countries, with the exception of uh, Ireland and sometimes Belgium or, or some other joke, but if you go to the bilateral relations, they're between reasonable, good, or excellent in Europe because they un understand much better what it is to have a real war they understand much better what it is when you have to deal with a barbarian. They finally realized that Putin is not this nice guy that happens to speak Russian, but the culture is completely different, and it, you must consider culture. For a very long time, when you spoke to Europeans about culture, they would brand you as a racist, okay? Because they didn't understand that culture is by far the most important thing that explains human behavior. So now they're much more willing to understand it. They need the Israeli experience. They need Israeli weapons. They understand a bit better. Maybe our gas? Uh, yes, but, but that's in unfortunately yeah. not on a massive scale. I wish they would be, you know. Maybe dependent. in the future, though. Maybe. I don't know. I, I don't think it's, it's the, the important thing at the moment. At the moment, the most important thing is a combination of understanding the problem somewhat better and needing the Israeli experience in dealing with the kind of challenge that Europe is meeting today. So basically, our regional and international position have improved, has improved. We are for the first time a full-fledged regional power. We used to be a power in terms of the military, the economic issue, the technology, innovation, and so on. But the political part was missing because we couldn't maneuver between the different Arab states and the different Arab forces here in the region. Now, Arabs are sometimes competing on whose side will Israel stand inside Arab disputes. So I want, I want to ask you about the Arab world. There's 
a lot of talk about the next Arab nation to join this alliance that you're talking about, the United States, Israel, and the Arab world against Iran, being Saudi Arabia. Do you see that happening? And two, you you talked about the barbarism of the Iranian. I mean, we brought it up, but the barbarism of the Iranian. Isn't there barbarism on the side of the Arab world that we're aligning with? First of all, I work with my barbarians against their barbarians. When Roosevelt uh, was willing to help Stalin and even supply him with weapons, his interest was to defeat Hitler. The um, interest of Israel is to secure Israel. So I will work with whoever is willing to work with me. But there is also another thing. In the Arab world, unfortunately, the regimes, even the dictatorial and uh, oppressive regimes, are better than the society. Look what happened in Egypt. They had elections, free elections. What did they elect? The Muslim Brothers. Okay. Now, in the West, you had this fantasy. You have elections. They will have a democratic Egypt, or at least a process of democratization in Egypt. It turns out that what the Egyptians wanted was even worse than military dictatorship. So in terms of the realistic um, choices in the Middle East, you speak with Arab regimes who are not democratic, but some of them are more open-minded than others. First of all, look at Saudi Arabia. Is it, of course, not a democracy? Yes, but is MBS willing to open up um, Saudi Arabia? No, not also to the West, but primarily inside. Does he understand today, unlike Saudi Arabia before, that if you in Saudi Arabia finance radical imams in mosques throughout the West, that you're finally undermining yourself, your own interests, and that you should be somewhat more open vis-a-vis women and so on. Now, is this democracy? Is this pluralism? Of course not. But the question what is, what are the realistic alternatives? You see, Barack Obama, in his unbelievable folly when it comes to the Middle East, he did everything wrong that you can possibly imagine, perhaps without becoming directly involved in Syria. It has to be said, I no longer see his photo up here. Oh, I used to have a photo of him being miserable because yeah. it made me feel good when I saw him. By the way, he's a lovable individual. I'd love to have him as a neighbor, as a friend. or or. But the president of the United States being such a feeble person, not understanding anything about the world mm-hmm. and taking all the wrong t- um, decisions that you can possibly take. By the way, not, not just in the Middle East. Ask people in Asia about him, okay? Mm-hmm. They will tell you something very similar. What, what cues, though, you spoke about MBS being likely more conducive to uh, opening up Saudi Arabia. What cues do you see from him that that, you know, that that is the direction that maybe Saudi Arabia would be willing to go in? No, first of all, I see that he's no longer supporting the radical imams throughout the world. And second, how I so? see... How so? Like, what, what do you mean he's not supporting them? And how he used he... to finance them. And now the financing is stopped? And now 
he changed his policy on this issue. Is, is that the best that I could wish for? No. But is the direction positive? Or take something even more impressive for me, for instance. You look at the United Arab Emirates. Is it a democracy? Of course not. Thank God it isn't. Okay? Because at the moment, you, you don't jump from an authoritarian system to Jeffersonian democracy. But is the United Arab Emirates trying to convince its elite to be tolerant? Yes. In the huge and very beautiful mosque in Abu Dhabi, you have a welcoming statement at the entrance, including in Hebrew. I can show you the picture. It's unbelievable. Okay, I haven't seen it anywhere else. So you see, in the Arab world, first of all, countries that used to be very belligerent, becoming more inst interested in stability. I mean, consider the difference between Nasser's Egypt to Sadat's Egypt and Sisi's Egypt. Today, we are in very close relations with Egypt because we have the same interests in defeating ISIS in the Sinai Peninsula, in defeating Iran, which is by far more important. And you can work with the Egyptians. Is it my choice of government? Of course not. But in the choice inside Egypt, between Sisi and the Muslim Brothers, the Muslim Brothers is the worst possible thing that you can get. The worst. By the way, we have the Israeli Muslim Brothers, it's called Shas and, uh, you know, the ultra-Orthodox and so on, and they're doing exactly the same. They seem as if they are benign, and basically there is something malignant about them. So what you get in Egypt today is a country that wants stability in the region, that not only is not waging war against Israel, but is cooperating with Israel strategically, and could be, I hope, one day when it is stronger inside, unfortunately Egypt is very poor, and it has no answer to the problems of feeding its own people. But it is the only anchor of regional stability that you can think about, or less instability. So again, the perfect is the enemy of the good. This idea of Jimmy Carter and, and later uh, Obama, that things could be dramatically better and therefore you undermine what is good. Yeah, the okay? base of it was this inability to accept the fact that the culture of the Arab world doesn't want you know human rights and equality for women they thought that you know there would be this arab spring and look all sudden... you have this uh, very strange americans suffer from terminal optimism okay inside america it's a good thing because it makes america uh, it, it makes it possible for americans to reinvent themselves every time they have a major challenge. I, I have great faith in the ability of Americans to reinvent themselves and adjust themselves. But when it comes to the world, 
the idea is that in every Saddam Hussein, there is a little Thomas Jefferson <laughs> trying to come out, okay? The idea is that if you appease your enemies, then your enemies will change because actually they only become radical because you mistreated them. This completely distorted and unrealistic perception of, of the world is constantly making it impossible for Americans, not always. I mean, look at Nixon and Kissinger. They did the right thing, okay, in the Middle East, kicking the Soviet Union out. But if you take Eisenhower in 56, Carter in 77, or Obama uh, recently, more recently, in uh, he had two terms in office. Unfortunately, the damage was much greater. They... Did, they were not willing to accept that the realistic alternatives are both not a democracy. They believed that you can usher in. Bush believed that you can do it with the Marines. You bring democracy to Iraq. Um, Obama believed that with a brilliant um, speech in Cairo or in Ankara, he can change the first of all, Egypt, and, you know, deal later with the Muslim brothers, and also with Erdogan, that he considered in the beginning, Obama, as being a very positive force. But again, Erdogan is a Muslim brother. At the moment, he is less aggressive. Anybody who is not suspicious about uh, Erdogan will be surprised, and not in a positive way. But if, again, let's look at the broad picture from a Middle Eastern and an Israeli and an American point of view, it is improved. Let me put it this way. There are three basic situations. A good reality that looks good is the best. A bad reality that looks bad is okay because you realize you have to change something but a bad reality that looks good to people who don't understand what they're seeing is the, is the worst possible, okay? At the moment, we have a bad reality with Iran. It finally looks bad even to the Biden administration. Even it's a beginning in Europe. And therefore, it's not as dangerous as a very bad reality, looking good with hope that is unsubstantiated concerning Iran. Mm -hmm. So, so did, in this did, context, um, things are getting better. Why did Iran choose, to, didn't Iran see it coming that it's not in their interest necessarily to assist Putin? Wouldn't it be smarter for them to not provide Putin with the weapons? The Iranians are smart, but there are two kinds of smart, as Putin demonstrated. There is smart on the operative level, and there is smart on the strategic level. On the operative level, Putin was very smart. I mean, for instance, when Obama basically invited him to come to Syria by saying we should all, you know, work against terrorists in Syria, and Putin said, yes, I have terrorists. Anybody who's against um, uh, Assad is a terrorist. So the, he was very smart in terms of the operational moves. But when he invaded 
the Ukraine, he undermined strategic interests on three levels. First of all, look at China and Russia. Okay, China has one and a half billion people with no natural resources. And next to it is a huge country with a tiny population of 140 million people with enormous resources. What do you think happens? Okay, the real um, danger to Russia is China. What should Putin do? Work with the Americans, with the Europeans, so that he's not being dominated by China. But he was operatively very smart and strategically stupid enough to go in the other direction. Second, in, in his confrontation vis-a-vis -vis the United States and Europe, what was his number one asset? The folly of Americans and Europeans believing that because of interdependence, he's a moderate guy that you can deal with, you can have a dialogue, you can engage. There are different words to use for appeasement because the term appeasement is no longer popular. And he destroys it. So he does something that is stupid on the strategic level for the second time. Third time, Russia is a backward country in terms of I don't know, the medical system, 19th century outside of St. Petersburg and, and Moscow. Um, Russia is a backwards country because it basically, its economy is based on natural resources rather than on the abilities of the Russian economy. So he, instead of trying to occupy um, the Ukraine, if he would have focused on what is happening inside Russia, he could have changed Russia. But the Russian people supported him in taking off his shirt and going fishing and occupying another country because Russia is great again. This is undermining his position inside Russia because I, I am not sure he can survive this war inside. So strategically speaking, he is doing the wrong thing, even if he moves in a very smart way on the operational level. Iran is very similar in this regard. Are they much more sophisticated than the Arabs? Yes, from an Israeli point of view, an Arab enemy is much easier to deal with than an Iranian enemy. Uh, do they have more strategic patience? Yes. But when it comes to the overall picture, for instance, they have a very able people. I mean, the Iranian society is very impressive compared, of course, to the Arabs. But also, if you look at the broader picture, sometimes the Iranians remind me of Israel in the 1990s, okay? And we were quite advanced in the 1990s. The Iranians can, if they want, hegemonize the Middle East, not by occupying it or generating wars. They can do what Germany is doing today. Germany is the most important country in Europe, not because its ta it tanks reached the gates of Moscow, but because they have a Everybody's big a population, a, a very industrious population, they work hard, they're in the middle of Europe. Iran could do this in the Middle East, if it were not, but we always underestimate the element of 
um, radicalism. We assume that the radical is a guy who couldn't get things in the legitimate way, so he did it in an illegitimate way, but if we give him the opportunity of going to, to again to the point where he can achieve his objectives in a legitimate way, he would do it. No, he's a radical. Okay? So, the Iranians, in a way, can't help themselves but be the barbarians that they are and to undermine their own position because they seek domination in the way they do it, in the aggressive way that they do it. Americans have a problem with it, again, because they don't understand the deep meaning of radicalism. Radicalism is not a show. There is something substantial inside it that forces Russia to do what Putin did in, in, in the Ukraine and what the Iranians are doing now by hardening their uh, position. Um, let's, let's get back to, to the war, because I think still it's the most important geopolitical event right now taking place I in agree. the world. Um, and it's kind of stagnized, I think, in a way. It's, nobody knows where it's going and who's winning. Although yesterday I saw this amazing thing on Twitter. You saw a picture of Christmas in Kiev and Christmas in Moscow. So you see Christmas in Moscow, you have the lights, you have people celebrating, people are happy, people are shopping, people are enjoying, couples in love. And in Kiev, it's uh, pitch black and ruins rubble. and rubble yes and it really to me it really represents the states of the things as of no no I, I disagree why i disagree why because first of all putin to a very large extent created the ukrainian people okay that this is much more important pictures you know they say one picture is worth a hundred a thousand words one picture is worth a thousand lies and a video is worth a million lies. Whatever looks one thing is probably the other. Okay. Okay? So, at the moment, can you celebrate um, Christmas in Moscow because there is electricity and it's very difficult to do it in Kiev because there is no electricity? Yes. But the trajectory of the situation is that the Russians are at a dead end because here is their country incapable of dealing with the domestic and international problems that I mentioned before in Russia, whereas the Ukrainians have the support of the world, not only militarily, and the promise, the hope that their situation will improve in a dramatic way. First of all, today there is no problem anymore about the Ukrainian people. Putin made sure that the Ukrainians are Ukrainians. A lot of Ukrainians thought that they were Russians before, but 2014 and now forged the, um, the Ukrainian people. By the way, if I were a member of NATO, I would erect a statue of Putin in NATO headquarters in <laughs> Brussels and a statue of, uh, of Putin in the uh, Ukrainian parliament in Kiev. Because in the long run, he only improved their situation. He gave a new lease on life to NATO and he uh, galvanized 
the Ukrainian people. Yeah, but that doesn't comfort the average Ukrainian. I don't care. I don't uh, care. This is like Israelis who tell me, oh, maybe the situation of Israel economically is very good, but you can't take this to the supermarket. If it sounds interesting for a journalist, it must be insignificant. Okay? Don't look at what is happening now. Look at the trajectory. Okay, life in, um, in the Ukraine is very difficult. People are suffering. But the Ukraine, if I look at the prospects of the Ukraine, in 30, 40 years from now, after it is rebuilt after the war, okay, mm -hmm. it will be a good place to live in. But you don't see a scenario in which Putin uses, I don't know, like a tactical nuclear weapon and decimates Ukraine and wins the war... And there is no more Ukraine? You are actually saying that the West will commit suicide because if this works, then it's the end of your, your way of life and my way of life, okay? Because if Russia can use nuclear weapons and decimate a country in the middle of Europe and nothing happens to Russia, this is the end of democracy. I agree. I wouldn't say it's a it's a it's a positive outcome, but is it a likely one? No. 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 Why? No. Because Putin, unless, you think Putin unless believes that you there assume will be. Yeah. that also the Americans are willing to commit suicide. About the Europeans, I'm not sure. At the moment <laughs> the trajectory is very positive from a European point of view. And maybe these guys will again come back to history. They have been deluding themselves about the world. But the change that is happening now in Europe, I think, is only growing deeper. And if the uh, Russians will escalate the war, it will grow even deeper. The Europeans have a tendency to capitulate, but this tendency has been weakened recently, not strengthened. What do recently. you think would happen if Putin took a dramatic step like that or something Look, else? Look, I don't think that, that uh, nuclear weapons, tactical nuclear weapons are a realistic option. So reserves okay. and an invasion of million soldiers, or I don't know, something... You know what this would do? Carpet bombing. Here. Look, I'm not an expert on Russia. I haven't, I don't speak Russian. I haven't studied. You do speak the, German. I do speak so German. What but, would it take for Germany to and NATO to actually well, step up? Well, they actually did step up. I mean, when you double your defense um, expenditure for, from 47 billion euros to 100 billion euros, you're saying we are going finally to have an army. Yes, but they're okay? still deterred from going, stepping in and helping Yes, Ukraine and, and they should on be, the ground. They should be deterred because you don't want to push things to the point where you can have a nuclear confrontation between NATO and Russia. Okay? So I understand that they're careful. But I don't assume, and as you know, because we've spoken before the war, I assume that something like the war in the Ukraine is possible. Okay? But a nuclear confrontation, I don't think is possible. Now, let me put it this way. If we have a nuclear confrontation, we both, you won't be there to tell me I told you so. Okay? <laughs> no, because no. We'll, we'll be here one last time because, before the end. <laughs> because we'll all go together when we go. If we go back to Tom Lehrer and the song in the 1960s about the nuclear holocaust. Okay? We'll all go together when we go. 
but I don't think that you can, Russia can't win this war, okay? Because unless America wants to capitulate, not Obama or one or that or, or another president wants to capitulate, but if America wants to, to capitulate and basically to commit suicide, if all the democracies want to commit suicide, then they let something like that happen, okay? Mm -hmm. So I don't think it's a possibility. If you ask me, Putin already lost the war. Say he keeps Crimea and he keeps certain Apart. parts of the Ukraine. Okay. That's it not doesn't winning. make it less than a defeat. Mm -hmm. Okay? Because if a nuclear power goes on a war that goes on for a few years and then this is what they get, this is a defeat. And everybody in Russia will understand it. Mm -hmm. And I think Putin will be over. Again, speak to people who specialize in Russia. Maybe they know more about it or, mm -hmm. or their predictions can be based better on reality. I don't know. My perception is my understanding of, of the reality is that Putin already lost the war in the But, sense that we spoke before, strategically speaking. Mm -hmm. Can he destroy a few more cities in, in the Ukraine? Yes. By the way, will it help Europe to deepen the conviction they're having now? Yes. Okay. What, what about the economic situation in Europe, meaning you, as you mentioned, Germany doubled the defense budget. Now it's burning a billion and a half dollars, half a, a trillion a dollars on energy, half a trillion dollars over the last year. Like, could we find Europe in an economic crisis that's so devastating that and we, nobody likes Germany in an economic crisis, I think, right? That's, no, nobody likes it. But look, the question is, what kind of Are you wise or are you clever? The Germans were clever. They said, well, we can get Russian gas and it's relatively cheap. It is cheaper than um, gas that you get from the United States because you have to liquefy it and then, uh, you know, it's more complicated and so on. So they were clever. And, but they were profoundly irresponsible making themselves dependent on Russian gas. Would it be better if the Germans didn't go there in the first place? Yes. Would it be better without the war in Ukraine if they would say, okay, we made a mistake with a Nord Stream 1 because we had a chancellor who was basically a traitor, okay, Schroeder, was basically a traitor working for Putin his, uh, against his own country. Yeah. And he then, sat on the board of Nord Stream, right? Not only, he owns, he owns it. He owns it, Okay, yeah, yeah. well, to, he, he runs it, but uh, yeah. he, he became unbelievably rich. But he sold his country to Russia, okay? So not doing Nord Stream 2 would have been a better decision. But having made all the wrong decisions so far, Now the decision to make themselves free of dependence of Russia is extremely costly, but is going in the right direction. For instance, what kind of an idiot gives up nuclear power because you had a tsunami in Japan, okay? So build safer 
um, uh, reactors. Mm -hmm. Okay, you don't have to be Chernobyl. Nobody even died in, in, in this in this regard. The whole approach of saying we will find a way of going to renew renewable energy. And for the time being, which is very long, we will be totally dependent on the Russians. You're basically saying, if somebody is an addict, he shouldn't go to a place that, where he's cleaned up because it is very painful to be cleaned up from uh, the abuse of um, of heroin or, yeah. or or whatever like us and coffee okay no 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 no, no, no. let's be serious okay <laughs> we're speaking here about something that destroys your life coffee won't destroy your life okay um so you're saying the pains that the germany pains is going through right now are are, are part of the rehabilitation it. exactly the pains are the pains of getting clean of an addiction to heroin okay but and are they cutting nord stream i mean do they have plans the, to they blew up the russians the supposedly. russians blew it up but and, and this is Nord stream too yeah but will they become dramatically less dependent on russia yes does it have a cost yes is this cost painful yes yeah, so you go through a painful cost by the way people don't know but up until at least two months ago i don't know if it's now if it's true but germany still was buying every month uh, i don't know a billion dollar worth or okay uh, but of you gas see from the russia. question is the trajectory again mm -hmm. the trend don't look at what is happening at the given time you have mm -hmm. journalists for it journalists are the people who focus the attention on things that don't matter okay, okay? instead of looking at the broader uh, mm -hmm. at the broader picture so you can be impressed by a great um, uh, celebration of christmas in moscow but you're not looking at the weakening of the the russian way of life also in the eyes of the russians now if after this war as i expect ukraine will be rebuilt and people in kiev will have a very good life people in Mos not only in moscow because putin manages to keep in moscow and in st petersburg a reasonable way of life but throughout Russia, people will see how people live in the Ukraine in 20, 30 years. This is what is weakening the Russian system. If Ukraine will okay. be part of the EU eventually? Or... It will. It will. I don't care if they're part of NATO or not. Okay, it will help if they will be a part of NATO. Mm -hmm. The Russians could have prevented it. If the Russians would have said, look, we will not do anything, but if you're part of NATO, we will invade. NATO would not uh, take the Ukraine in, mm -hmm. okay? Because in the mood of Europe before the war in Ukraine, not coming to this point would be the ultimate objective. Now, it will probably join the European Union. By the way, it's a very corrupt country. It's not as if, you know, the Ukrainians are saints because they um, fight the Russians. They must be saints. They're not. Okay. Yeah, but so Romania is also a corrupt country. Yes, and, uh, yes, you know. yes. So what I'm saying is basically in, 
in 20 years, okay, after, perhaps sooner, after the Ukraine is rebuilt, Ukraine will be much more of a danger to Russia than it was before the invasion. Because proving that what the Russians consider Russians, because the Russians consider the Ukrainians to be Russians, okay? That Russians can have a good life if they don't have the kind of regime like Putin has today. This is a great danger to Putin. What about uh, the riots in Iran? Are you optimistic? Uh, because I heard anal analysis saying um, there's no way back from, like, this is a... Look, there is a way back. Unfortunately, brutality is very successful. I remember debating, including uh, the Israeli intelligence on Syria, mm -hmm. when they were saying uh, in a few weeks, uh, Assad's regime is gone. And I said, don't underestimate the effectiveness of brutality. Okay? Now, Mubarak was willing to give up in Egypt. In um, uh, Jordan, in 1970, the king did not want to butcher his own people. Assad didn't have a problem. Mm -hmm. And he killed 600,000 of his own people. So brutality works. Because they're not really they're his own, are, were they his own people in Syria? Not really. They're, were, they were the not. Question, uh, the question is. Right? It's not the same thing, really. And also in no, Jordan, Palestinians were not. Uh, no, no, but, but wait a minute. King Hussein was not willing to butcher the Palestinians. Okay. He destroyed but the he PLO, but not the Palestinians, that the majority of the Jordanian population. Okay? Yeah. In, um, in Iran, they're truly the same people. In, in Egypt, mm -hmm. Mubarak was not willing to send his army, and I'm not sure the army would have mm -hmm. butchered um, Egyptians on yes. a massive scale. In Syria, if you're an Alawite and you don't butcher everybody else, everybody else will butcher the Alawites. Yes. Okay? So it's a different reality. Yeah. And... Assad succeeded in staying in power with Russian help, okay, with Iranian help, primarily because he was a barbarian. And barbarism works. So, and the Iranians are certainly barbarians. Do I hope that it will collapse? Yes. Do I, would I, if I could, help bring about the collapse of, of this regime? Yes, because in the final analysis, there are two impressive people in the Middle East, the Israelis and the Iranians, okay? So you have a great hope. In the long run, you can have um, Iran, Israel, the United States, and Europe on the same side against radicals in the Arab world, okay? You can have Iran extremely successful in a way that not only will not bother Israel, it will have cooperation with Israel. It's a possibility. D demographically, how small of a minority do you think the, regi the current regime kind of rests on? I don't know. Again, I don't speak Farsi. I have not studied the Iranian society inside. I can only quote what people that I respect say about it. They say that they have a hardcore of a third of the um, 
population in Iran that will at least go along with them. I'm also told that many people have no longer any faith in the Iranian revolution. Again, you can be an Iranian patriot, but not support the Iranian revolution. And they say people are disenchanted with it after a long period of time. You have a very widespread reality in uh, Iran of prostitution, of drug abuse, of uh, a society falling apart, uh, parts of the society falling apart. So it could go in what I consider the positive direction. Could it be tomorrow or in 30 years? And I don't know. And the Iranian Secret Service doesn't know. Okay? Look, in Egypt, we had the uprising against Mubarak. There were, if I'm not mistaken, 46,000 people whose job was sitting in Egypt to identify when it will happen, and they failed. Okay? We don't know when such a movement gathers critical mass. It's there, the seeds are there, but the question if it erupts, if it brings down the whole system, is something that if you predict and you're successful, you were lucky, okay? But only lucky. So I don't know. Is it very serious? Yes. Is it very widespread? Yes. Is it riding on, a sh on the shoulders of previous protests of other people who are unhappy about what is happening in Iran, in Iran? Yes. But will it bring down this regime? Hard I can't tell you. I hope so, but I can't tell you. Well, one last question. Do you, are you optimistic about uh, Saudis um, aligning with us and for peace to be between us and Saudi Arabia? Look, the question is what is important. If you're a journalist, you want <laughs> diplomatic relations and you want normalization and you're very happy when <clears throat> Israeli uh, tourists that are not Muslim can visit Mecca. By the way, journalists okay. uh, weren't very happy about the Abraham Accords in Israel. No. They were dissing it, calling it uh, nothing. Until well, the people well, it is, it is because these guys were not happy with the fact that Netanyahu and Trump brought it. Yeah. But I think that what is much more important is the success of Israel of one government and one American administration bringing it, and then the next government and the next administration developing it. Yeah. Uh, this assumption, you mm -hmm. know, that in Israel everything is falling apart. The political system in Israel is... Um, dysfunctional, okay? But this dysfunctional political system nevertheless did not prevent Israel from functioning because in Israel what is functioning is not the government but the society and the institutions. So during this four, three, four years where there was no functioning political system, Israel managed to deal with, to, to respond to four major crises and to come out better than most democracies. The health crisis, 
the economic crisis, security crises, and the political crisis. So, what is strong in Israel is the society and the institutions. We fared well with the uh, health crisis because we have in Israel health insurance that covers practically everybody and is accessible to everybody. We managed, basically, you spoke about the economic problems in Europe and in the United States, we have about half the inflation that you have in Europe and in the United States, and at the moment, also very little unemployment in, in Israel, except the unemployment that the ultra-Orthodox selected because they're parasites. But the, this worked because the Israeli society is strong, and the budget department of the treasury is strong, and the Bank of Israel is strong. So, again, society and institutions. The security crisis, we managed to uh, deal with quite effectively because the army is functioning and the intelligence community is functioning and the Israelis are willing, again, with the exception of the ultra-Orthodox and the Arabs, the real Israelis, those who make Israel, namely the non-ultra-Orthodox uh, um, Jews and the Druze, okay? And then also you have a major parliamentary crisis, but the Israeli democracy is stronger than ever before. And on top of it, you have this enormous strategic opportunity of the Abraham Accords, again, delivered by one government and one administration and developed by another government and another administration. A country is strong if the society and the institutions are strong. And if the government is functioning well, but you great. But can't, you can't deny that, I mean, you can't deny, but, but it's hard to deny, I think, from my perspective, that there is something tearing at the seams of Israeli society that, that not only things I can feel, deny, feel I feel like polarized. Uh, look, no? again, you've been reading too many newspapers, listening to too much. On Twitter too much. And yes, and also... <laughs> watching look, football. This, uh, watching football, all, all the dumb <laughs> things that people can do. made mashed potatoes uh, out but, of my but brain. But to, to come stronger at Eitan's point, uh, I do think you're the journalist right now because you, what you preach the entire podcast, you're not. Maybe you're not doing right now because I'm exactly if we're looking, what, if we're looking thirty years forward in Israel, we're going to have majority of Haredis and Arabs who are the exact if, populations. If we don't do anything about but it, but currently that's the trend. No, that's the no, trajectory no, of Israel. No, 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 no. Let me give you another example. <laughs> All the wise guys, and particularly one guy who didn't know what he was talking about, uh, Yeshayahu Leibovitch, okay. said immediately after the Six-Day War, if this goes on for years, the occupation, we will have gallows in Tel Aviv for people like me, and Shabak will rule Israel, in spite of the occupation that I don't like. Okay, I wish we could reach a peace agreement. And since we can't because of the Palestinians, I wish we would unilaterally get out of the uh, most of the West Bank, okay? So do I think that it's not a positive thing? Yes, but is the Israeli society, against all predictions, is the Israeli society every decade more pluralistic than the decade before it? 
Yes. Israelis have an obsession. Let me put it this way. First of all, there is something wrong about Jews. A Jew cannot feel good unless he feels bad. Okay? And a Jew must say, okay, I've survived until now, but tomorrow morning there will be a catastrophe. If you don't say it to yourself, you don't feel good about yourself. You have to have some kind of fear that starting tomorrow the world will collapse. Then you can sleep well. But you can sleep well because <laughs> yeah. you have your catastrophe in mind. You expect a catastrophe and this makes you feel... It's like the joke uh, Jerry Seinfeld just told a few weeks ago where he goes, uh, it, it's a, a joke only Jews will understand. So it goes like this. Uh, two businessmen meet in New York. One says, how's business? And the other goes, amazing. That's the joke. <laughs> yeah, two Jews. No. A Jew... Now I explained the joke. Also, when Seinfeld told it, nobody understood it. But a Jew would never say, how's the business? A Jew would never say amazing. Yes. So you're saying to only Jewish Jews, business. Only, yeah. Jews, only Jews would yeah. understand. Yes. Yes. yes, yes. Jews complain. Great joke. Okay. Great joke. That's what they do. And this... You're not supposed to say bullshit on, on your program, no, right? So okay. I'll, I'll find it. another... This idea that everything is... The Israeli society is tearing up at the seams. It is... The Israeli society was never as strong as it is today. The Israeli democracy was never as strong as it is today. Do you have tensions in the Israeli society? Yes. Serious tensions, yes. But compare it to the tensions that we already had. I mean, go back to the 1980s to what we had between Oriental and Ashkenazi Jews. Okay, we were on the verge, I wouldn't say on a civil war, but on of a very serious... And what happened since? Because when people had this very simplistic linear projection, whatever is going bad must go bad also in, in the future. Let me start with numbers. The moment you stop the ultra-Orthodox from stealing hundreds of billions of dollars from us, we work and they, the parasites live off what they steal from us. They will not be able to have Agreed. so many children without working. Agreed. They will either starve or work, okay? And yes. when they work, they meet real responsible people who work, who serve in the army, and then the ultra-Orthodox society will crumble because the only reason it can exist is that they, their rabbis keep them dumb, unemployable, and keep them so that their rabbis uh, provide them with the basic necessities of life. But, so, so but. if you, you get... The Israeli society, the productive one, the one that everything good in Israel comes from people who are not ultra-Orthodox. Okay? But they're not willing to come together, the productive society. Meaning Lapid and Gantz and Gidon Saar are not willing to sit and, with the 30 others. And yeah, I agree. And if you could get them all together in the same and room, yes. you'd have a coalition of 70. A, a, but, excellent. But, but, but it's not happening. Not, not yet. You Wait. think in 10 years, hopefully yes. they will. Okay. Yes, but it might yes. be too late. No, because no, that coalition of 70 in 10 years will be 68. Because once you force the ultra-Orthodox to work, by the way, I don't want them to contaminate the army at 
the state that they are today. But once you force them to work, then the fact that they have I a lot of children 100%. is not a threat. I because agree. if they're productive, and by the way, they can have their way of life. Let me tell you something about me personally. Recently, they found the grave of my great-grandfather in Germany. Now, this guy, in terms of his way of life, was very similar to the Haredim. But you know what he says on its grave in Hebrew, okay. in German and in Hebrew. Okay. It says, Kol yamav chai miyagia kapav. All his life he, uh, he lived, lived off the sweat of his of hands. Of yes. Yeah. Okay. Now, this is enormous. I don't care. Look, the ultra-Orthodox can have their superstition that they call religion. And I have friends who believe that crystals have energies and they have their superstition and everybody can have his own superstition. I don't care. Let everybody, that's what pluralism is about. Let everybody live the way he wants to live, provided he works. People don't deserve to live in, if they don't work. Now, if you have a few, a few geniuses uh, in, in uh, biblical studies or Talmud studies, fine, I'm willing to finance them the way I'm financing a pianist or a violinist or, or something that is particularly gifted. Yes, but if you have a whole society that is parasitic and primitive and we pay them in order not to educate their children, there is something wrong about us. I'm delighted with what is happening now with the government. You are. Yes. Because they because will bring their exactly own. Exactly like Putin mm -hmm. and exactly like Iran, I also want them to realize what Derry is. Okay? And to me, Derry is a hundred times more dangerous than Smutridge and Ben Gvir put together. Because Derry is the one that is supporting this parasitic reality. So how are you optimistic? How, how does what's happening now have a positive outcome? Israelis finally see what the ultra-Orthodox ah. are doing. Like Europe okay? and uh, Russia. Like you're, they, uh, you're like Europe and Putin like uh, uh, America and Iran. Iran. But everybody knows what the, that's what I'm no, saying. Everybody knows that, that not I everybody think that Likudnikim, like, like people who vote on the traditional right, I mean, Haredim, I think, are, for almost all uh, all their political ideology are not right-wing, maybe only security-wise. They want wise. to be parasitic. Exactly. So I'm saying most everybody on the right yeah. doesn't like what's happening with the Haredim, yes. but the right can't get, yes, they can't get along. Yes, but there is a difference between generally not liking and perceiving it as a danger. What is happening now shows Likudniki, or people from the Likud, who vote Likud, what they are losing by, by aligning themselves. Look, the government that we had, the Bennett-Lapid government, proved one thing. There is no right and left in Israel, okay? There are no socialists in Israel, thank God. There are no, really, in terms of, <laughs> in terms of uh, you know, significant. You, you, you have a joke here or there, like Lazimi or like, uh, I don't know. Nobody in Israel wants socialism because we know what socialism is. Okay, we had it, so nobody likes it. We On the other hand, like, you yeah. don't have radical capitalists in Israel. Again, politically significant. You have individuals, but not politically significant socialists or radical capitalists. 
And the distinction in Israel between the different camps is the welfare state being a bit more to the right or, or a bit more to the left. That, so that on socio-economic issues in Israel, there is no major disagreement. On security, there is no major disagreement. Everybody realizes that Iran is the number one enemy and we should fight it and we are willing to risk a war that will bring missiles to Tel Aviv in order to prevent the Iranians from uh, threatening our existence. Concerning the Palestinians, there are some people who believe that one day there will be peace, but in, in, in terms of the uh, realistic options in the foreseeable future, nobody believes that with the Palestinians you have a partner um, for, for peace. Very, very few. And those who really believed in it couldn't get into the Knesset, okay? They have, what, 2% of the population. It's, it's negligible, okay? And they have Arats, okay? But uh, it's negligible. So even when it comes to the judiciary, in the final analysis, you will have a reasonable compromise that people will agree about concerning the override uh, part uh, that you can have with 70 members or with 65 members that five of them are from the opposition and then splitting the position of the, uh, the attorney, uh, the chief attorney, attorney general and yeah. so on. So you, you can very easily reach the one major rift is, do we want to support ignorant parasites? Okay, this is what the ultra-Orthodox want, ignorant parasites, because they're the only ones that will vote for these rabbis. Okay, yep. so when we are supposed to finance the ignorance of the parasites so that their children will be ignorant parasites, people also in the Likud will understand it. So I'm very, uh, very optimistic. <laughs> for the same reason that I'm optimistic about Europe, after the Ukraine, much yeah. more than before the Ukraine. Okay. I'm optimistic about the Israeli society after this government more than before. To your, to your benefit, uh, in, uh, in the last episode, we were like talking about how bad it looks with the Iranian deal. And you said a Yiddish proverb that I can't cite, but uh, that basically says, uh, like, uh, the, there is, uh, you were optimistic. You said a solution will come. No, I never use the term solution. This right, is a, I'm paraphrasing. Do you remember the Yiddish? Uh, no. The Yiddish no, no, <laughs> okay. no. Okay. Just go I, to the well, last Thanks episode, for bringing guys. that yeah, up. Yeah, no. <laughs> I'll have to watch it in yeah, order to yeah, remember yeah. how smart I was. Yeah, but, yeah. Uh, a solution know. will present itself, something no, like that. No, not a solution. Never okay. use the... The okay. only thing in life that has a solution is a crossword puzzle. Okay. okay? Now, you guys are married, right? I wish. To I each wish. other? Uh, you, you <laughs> wish to be married? To him, yes. It's a big oh, dream. Okay. Yeah, I'm married. Married with a kid. I'm and not. you still believe things have solutions? Uh, no. Okay. <laughs> okay. Okay. Look, I'm speaking about response, not about solution. Yeah. Okay? okay? Solution is the assumption once you do something, there's no problem. Everything important in life doesn't have a solution. Okay? Crime doesn't have a solution. You can bring it down dramatically from an unacceptable level to an acceptable level with a good law enforcement system. Poverty doesn't have a solution. You can bring it down with a well-functioning welfare state. 
okay? From an unacceptable level to an acceptable level. We will have tensions in Israel. A pluralistic society is full of tensions. A pluralistic Jewish society has more tensions than others because we are an unpleasant people, I'm delighted to say. <laughs> I mean, I couldn't live in a pleasant environment. It's boring, okay? But do, are we on a positive or negative trajectory? Remember, all democracies are in crisis. You don't have one major leader in, the, in a democratic country. Not anybody. People believe that Angela Merkel was a leader. No, she made two catastrophic mistakes. The one with a, a Russian and gas and the immigration. Okay? Mm -hmm. So, democracy is in a crisis, but it will overcome this crisis. The essence of the crisis of democracy is that we didn't realize that there can be too much of a good thing. Okay? For instance, we all want transparency, right? The question is what happens when everything is transparent? Then nobody talks to the subject, everybody talks to the protocol. So you can't do what is good because you're obsessed with what looks good. And it undermines democracy. Okay? Pluralism is good up to a point. Beyond a certain point, to preserve pluralism, you should stop being pluralistic. Mm -hmm. Let me give you an example on this. Say we all want to go to dinner with five other friends. One wants chicken, the other one wants beef, um, this guy wants kosher, the other wants halal. Everything is fine, vegetarian, what have you. What happens when a cannibal comes? <laughs> I want to know if I'm on the guest list or on the menu, right? So I will not let the cannibal say, I will eat whatever I want. No. If I want all the others to be in a pluralistic state, I need to destroy the cannibal. And certainly he will not come to dinner. Okay? So we don't understand or don't understand enough that the real enemies of everything that is good are the purists. The perfect is the enemy of the good. People who take an important value beyond a certain point are undermining this value. What I want is people in the middle of the political spectrum to realize that the extremes are their enemies. The enemy of the left is the radical left. The enemy of the right is the radical right. But sometimes it's hard to tell if Ask the extreme... Ask me, I'll no, tell no. you. <laughs> Run for politics and we'll... Uh, no. no. <laughs> you see, when I was offered many years ago uh -huh. to become a member of a parliament without even running for it, And when I said no, the person who could offer it, it was at the time in Israeli politics where you could offer it, asked me why, and I gave him two reasons. The first is I said, I'm the best possible ballet critic, 
but I'm not a prima ballerina. These are two very different, mm-hmm. uh, you know, qualities that you need. And the second thing I told him is, if I go into politics, I will have to spend my life with people like you. <laughs> and his answer was, young man, I used to be once, young man, Jungerman, he used the term Jungerman, a, a very wise saying just slipped your lips. You're not aware how wise it is. Wait 30 years. You will understand how wise it is, and I'm stopping, I, I, I stop bothering you because I realize that this is true, okay? I can understand politics. I can tell people in politics what they are. They don't know very often. But I wouldn't be a good politician because I approach every question with an open mouth, okay? And that's not something you should do in in politics. I alienate people. I enjoy alienating people, okay? So, but... Are we in a crisis of democracies? Yes. Have democracies gone through more difficult crises in the past and survived it? Yes. So I have great faith in democracy because it is flexible. It can adjust itself. And in Israel, the Israeli society, the Israeli democracy is very promising. Is it a relaxed, pleasant environment? No. Do we want to live? in a pleasant environment. You know, for two years, I was visiting professor at Georgetown University in Washington. And everybody was so pleasant that I couldn't take it anymore. (laughs) I would come to Israel every two months just to get, you know, in my veins directly, the rudeness, the fun of disagreement, of... uh, So... We are getting not, in violent altercations we, in the road. No, yeah. no, no. A knife in the no. kidneys. No, 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 no. This is, this is because we don't have a police force. And our judges don't work for us. They work for the bad guys. Okay. Okay. Man, you, you have me back on your side now. <laughs> <laughs> I agree. Absolutely. A, there is no police. It is the most incompetent, corrupt. Impotent. Uh, impotent organization, actually the second most after the uh, prison service. It's even more Mm. primitive than that. And the uh, Ministry of Justice is just trying to have an easy life. Everybody can get, if he admits, he can get a ridiculous ridiculous plead. And then the judges work for the pedophiles and the terrorists. They don't work for me. Yeah. Okay. Their the punishment is ridiculous. I, we need to force them ten times as much as what they're doing. I don't want to rehabilitate a rapist. I want him off off the streets. Okay. And if he suffers, I can live with it. Okay. I'll enjoy it. So, so, and this will change. You will see that it will change because it went to the extreme. Look, we in Israel. Before we have a a calamity, we don't do anything. We were 15 years ago, a few months from having no water in the uh, homes, okay? And then we almost instantly became a water superpower. Mm -hmm. Superpower. 15 years ago. Uh, Approximately, 15 years ago. Mm -hmm. And and it's progressively getting Mm -hmm. back. For instance, we are the number one in the world reusing water, 85%. You know who number two is? The no. Spanish with 30%. Mm. Okay? We are now supplying 
through desalinization, 80% of the home consumption. Very soon, 100%. Mm-hmm. We are about to fill the Sea of Galilee with desalinated water because there isn't enough rain. We are giving the Jordanians 100 million cubic meters a year, which is doubling what we agreed about, and very soon we will double it again. So we have things that don't work well, you wait for a catastrophe, then we're the best. Okay. I think I think we can call this episode yeah. a dose of optimism. Yes. If anybody needs a dose sure. of optimism, just listen to Dan Shiftan. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Um okay, so we gotta wrap things up. Thank you so much. Yes, thank you for having us um, again. Welcome. Guys, Dan Shiftan is a prolifer proliferate uh, author. You have many, many books, right? Um we'll put links. some of them are in English? No, I my my objective is to um, influence the Israelis, mm. and I've done quite well. So some were translated, but my focus is on the Israeli Hebrew. society. Uh, what I've done recently in English is this book here. It is a reader yeah. together with uh, Walter Lacour. Mm. Uh, the, uh, uh, unfortunately, passed away. Uh, the Arab-Israeli reader, but and my new book that is uh, coming now uh, will be translated into English. So okay. this is Penguin. Uh, so yes. yeah, check it out. The Israeli Arab reader and other books by Dan Shiftan. And um, and that is it, basically. Yeah. Thank you so much, and uh, happy Hanukkah and. Uh, See you next year, hopefully, if you'll have us. (laughs) Bye, guys. Next year in Givatai. Yes. The new Jewish. (laughs) (laughs) Bye, guys. Bye, Bye, guys.